Hello, and welcome to Let's Pharmanize, a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm Justin Frederick. I'm Cal Vandegrift. I'm Mickey Ferguson. And I'm Shane Gerritsen. And today, we're going to be talking about Neuropilin 1, a new receptor implicated in the COVID-19 disease. All that and more on Let's Pharmanize. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views and opinions expressed within are those of the authors and speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent any affiliated institution or third party. about this one so this is gonna be good did you yeah this isn't necessarily new but it hasn't been like getting a whole lot of headlines so yeah we're talking about COVID-19 again if you don't like it tough in previous episodes we've talked about SARS-CoV-2's entry process into our cells describing the activation by the TMPRSS2 receptor aka the temptress and subsequent viral entry via ACE2 we've known about ACE2 for like a long time since almost the beginning It was one of the earliest things we learned about the virus's ability to gain entry to our cells. It wasn't until months later that we learned about the temptress's role, which is to cleave the viral S protein, you know, the famous spike protein that everybody always talks about. TMPRSS2 actually opens that up, allowing the virion to bind to ACE2. The virion is then taken up into the cell, RNA released, blah, 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 you know the rest. There's been a lot of research going into SARS-CoV-2, the causative agent of COVID-19, over the past almost two years. Can you believe it's been almost two years now? That's crazy. It's insane. It's, it's really, really wild. Billions of dollars have been spent on research alone. I don't even have a ballpark for the burden on the healthcare system at large or the economic damage, but I'd wager it's somewhere in the bazillions. This is not an episode about the financial burden of COVID-19 because that'd be really boring. We would probably lose subscribers. <laughs> By the way, if you're listening to this and you're not subscribed, do us a favor and hit that subscribe button. It helps the channel out and makes us feel good about the content we create. Back to COVID. You know I had to put that plug in somewhere. (laughs) Of course. All right. With all of this money and the hours of research and literally the greatest minds in the world uniting with common goals, we have learned so much about virology, immunology, physiology, genetics. We've learned new things about our own bodies. Just a tremendous outpouring of knowledge. And this makes it tough to keep up with it all. Especially because some of it changes. We're just inundated with COVID-19 information, almost two years of it. It can be really fatiguing, especially as healthcare professionals, us here who are still students and others who have been on the front lines of pandemic response. One of the new pieces of information that hasn't made a lot of headlines for some reason is a new receptor, a new doorway for SARS-CoV-2 viral entry. I'd like to introduce you to Neuropilin 1, also known as the NRP1 receptor, which we'll be henceforth calling the purple nurple. (laughs) I'm just kidding. We're not calling it that. Neuropilin 1, just based on the name, what kind of cells do you think wield this receptor? Um, Neurons and kidney cells. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, excellent. That's like, yeah, those two two, two of the biggest. Yeah, I was going to say neural, but I didn't think about the kidneys, actually. So uh, it sounds like you've already done some research or read about this. No, I just know how words work. (laughs) Nice. So, yeah. So it's initially found that it was initially found expressed in nerve and neuronal cells, although we've since found it in epithelial cells as well, and its physiological functions are pretty diverse. Here's just a few of the functions that neuropilin can carry out. Angiogenesis, which is the creation of new blood vessels. Axon pathfinding, which sounds 
really cool. That, that right? does sound cool. cool. Yeah, that's what I said too. <laughs> so that's the process of neurons actually sending out axons to reach other neurons. And this neuropylin-1 receptor has a major role in that. And it's also been suggested that neuropylin could be an immune checkpoint for T-cell differentiation. Remember the wildly long process of the uh, T-cell differentiation from immunology? Oh, yeah. I hated that. that they... Do they separate in, I think it's the thymus? Something like that, man. I don't it's, know. They go really like hard. all over the body it is, it and they, it's, it's complex. And there's lots of little like handshakes and cellular checkpoints and yep. stuff. Well, neuropylin is in there somewhere. Nobody knows where, somebody knows where, but we don't know where. Like ACE2, there's a significant amount of expression in the epithelium of the respiratory system. And interestingly, there's expression somewhere else in the northernmost region of the respiratory system one could say the upper respiratory system. And this abundance of receptor presence could be implicated in one of the more famous symptoms of COVID-19 disease. Can you guess what kind of cells I'm talking about? In the upper respiratory system? Yeah. Is it the syno, like the, is it the sinus epithelial cells? It's in that region, Calvin, you got a guess? Um, no, I don't, no, I'm, I'm interested to hear. Okay, Justin. Uh, honestly, I was kind of thinking the same way with sinus, but I don't know the technical term, so I'm kind of going with what Mickey said on this one. So you're in the, in the right track, but I, I, I want to be really specific. Olfactory nerve cells. Yeah. Specifically the olfactory bulb. Oh. You know, the olfactory nerves are like the only nerves in the body that are exposed. They're like the most exposed nerves. Yeah. Because they go like from the, the top of the nasal be, passage straight to the brain. That's why it's so easy to knock someone out if you punch them in the nose. Exactly. Like I'm amazed by that. <laughs> I wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't be my first thought, but okay, Mickey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The unique, more you know. So the unique and interesting symptom of COVID-19 that I'm talking about is of course, anosmia or loss of smell. Mm -hmm. While this symptom isn't totally unique to COVID-19, in fact, it's seen in many upper respiratory infections, what makes COVID-19 special is that it's not accompanied by nasal inflammation and runny nose. At least it's not a as common, uh, lots of COVID-19 patients do experience anosmia without rhinorrhea, but we're seeing a lot more nasal symptoms now with the Delta strain. The thing about the olfactory bulb and the extending nerves into the nasal passage is that they have very little expression of ACE2, minimal, almost none compared to like the rest of the respiratory system and particularly the lungs. Researchers at Nova Southeastern University, Dr. Kieran C. Patel College of Osteopathic Medicine, proposed that the effects of anosmia are caused by viral entry into the olfactory bulb via neuropylin-1. Neuropylin is expressed in nearly every cell in the nasal passage, including plentiful expression in the olfactory neurons. This could also be an avenue for viral entry into the central nervous system, which is kind of freaky. SARS-CoV-2 has been found in autopsy of humans in neuropylin-positive olfactory cells of patients who have died of COVID-19. Neuropylin is also theorized to play a role in the coagulopathies that develop as a result of severe disease. This is the dangerous random clotting that patients experience, which can lead to fatal complications like stroke or pulmonary embolism. Neuropylin, when inhibited in vitro, resulted in release of tissue factor and the formation of thrombi. Neuropylin is also upregulated in the kidneys of diabetic patients, which puts them at higher risk of kidney damage and even possible renal failure. Quick question. Yeah, what's up? Um, in your reading, did you find any standard of care for that, like, thromboembolic prophylaxis? Like, is everyone who comes in the hospital with COVID, do they get, like, heparin or Lovenox or whatever? Uh, I, not, I did not stumble upon this in this reading, and I don't want to, like, misquote anything, but I think they use Lovenox. 
and yeah. um, those fancy uh, stockings. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they just use Lobanox. Have you encountered anything similarly? Um, my memory is foggy at best, but I think on my hospital rotation, we saw a lot of Lovenox scripts with yeah. COVID, but I'm not sure if that was just for general VTE prophylaxis because yeah. a lot of people who come in with it also have comorbidities that predispose them to VTEs. When you're hospitalized for like more than 24 or 48 hours, there's, I don't know the guidelines on this, so don't mm -hmm. quote me, but you're supposed to be on some kind of VTE prophylaxis if anyway. You're, if you're bed bound. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's probably, there's going to be some crossover uh, in, indications for VTE prophylaxis regardless. So. Okay. It makes sense how you mentioned how the neuropylin 1 proteins were kind of involved uh, with kidney damage mm -hmm. for many patients. Because I remember during my community IPI, my preceptor actually asked me if COVID had anything to do with how severe hospitalized COVID-19 patients that were dying had kidney failure. Interesting. There, and even I looked into it with John Hopkins University, and they were noticing that there was a trend in a lot of patients that were dying with COVID-19 having kidney failure. Yeah or on autopsy, and at that time, this is back in 2020, 2019, I think, that the hypothesis was because of the high cytokine storm mm -hmm. or that was occurring due to SARS-CoV-2 that would lead to heavy burden on the kidneys, thus oh, leading yeah. to the kidney failure. So it's interesting that you mentioned this new protein because th that might actually be an even more accurate correlation. Yeah, it's definitely going to cause, I mean, I mean, if you're, if you've got more doors in the kidney for the virions to enter, obviously there's going to be a higher presence of it there, but it is, it's interesting that it's got a higher expression in the kidneys of diabetic patients, which is just another, another reason that you know, people should get vaccinated because if you have diabetes and then you're also at higher risk for additional complications, not just from like the obvious ones that come with diabetes, but now also with like the kidney implications as well. But definitely the cytokine storm is probably the, is probably going to be the most damaging factor mm -hmm. since SARS-CoV-2 itself, interestingly, doesn't, I, won't, I don't want to say it doesn't damage the cells, but it doesn't lyse the cells. Like mm -hmm. when it leaves the cell, since it uses your endosomes or yeah, endosomes. Yeah. Endosomes. Yeah. Cause that's just like other, other viruses like e Ebola, I'm pretty sure, and herpes is a big one. They lice the cells when they leave. They just blow it up. But COVID's just like, you know, goes out the back door and it's like, see ya. I'm going to go mess with the other cells now. Hit it, quit it, and let the rest of the body deal with it. Hit it and quit it. <laughs> yeah, baby. All right. I'm going to get back into it. COVID confirmed dead beat dead. Yeah. So the last thing I want to talk about regarding COVID-19 today, which to me is the most significant, at least in terms of possible research for the future. Now, this part's going to get complicated and may even seem contradictory, but bear with me. One of the other functions of neuropylin-1 is nociception, or the sensation of pain. I mentioned earlier that neuropylin plays a role in angiogenesis. One of these mediators is VEGF-alpha, or vascular endothelial growth factor alpha, and VGF-A also plays a role in various neuropathies, and it's been studied for quite a few years. It was noted in 2018 that there was a correlation between VEGF expression in synovial fluids, that's lubrication for your joints, and higher pain scores in patients with osteoarthritis. Now, I know what you're thinking, Mickey, and yeah, I wrote your name on the script here. Self-reported pain is subjective and not always the best indicator for really anything. It's really hard to utilize this information clinically, but wait, there's more. There has actually been significant study on rats with the into the effect of VEGF on pain and rats response to painful stimuli. And VEGF consistently shows a pro-nociceptive effect. Increased VEGF shows higher pain, while decreased or inhibited VEGF shows decreased pain response. 
The same goes for neuropilin 1. When administered neuropilin 1, or neuropilin 1 antagonists, rats showed increased tolerance to painful stimuli. So you're probably thinking, so what's the point? The point is, the spike protein blocks neuropilin 1 and prevents VEGF from communicating in the pain cascade. Spike protein, when administered to rats, was analgesic. These rats are essentially given what's called induced mechanical allodynia by a spared nerve injury. Essentially, scientists ligate or tie off two of the three branches of the sciatic nerve, which results in hypersensitivity in one region of one paw. I watched a video on this and I can show it to you. I'll link it in the, the notes. It's, it does include mouse surgery, but it's surprisingly bloodless. I thought that was really cool. Well, I mean, if you don't hit any blood vessels and the nerves are closer to the skin. Yeah, yeah, essentially. But I, I don't know. I just expected there to be like, you know, some blood, but there wasn't. Um, it's just like, you know, meat. It honestly looked like undercooked chicken. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that was pretty cool. So they sliced this rat open or a mouse, whatever. And then they like trim the two of the sciatic nerves, and then they leave one nerve intact so it becomes hypersensitive. And then they make it sit on like a, a table that's got like mesh beneath it, and then they just like poke it with a, they poke like the paw with a little needle and just like see how it reacts. And they have like criteria based on like how quickly it retracts or whether it starts licking the paw a lot as to determine like its threshold for pain. That's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. They can then use the unoperated paw as a control for comparing pain threshold and response. Mm -hmm. When administered the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, mice showed a much higher pain threshold in the surgically affected paws. Now, why hasn't COVID-19 resulted in analgesia for people infected? In fact, it's causing pain and like other viruses is associated with soreness and muscle and joint aches. Plus the reported peripheral neuropathies patients experience after most other symptoms have resolved already. Despite any analgesic effect of the spike protein, the virus is doing a lot of other stuff in the body as well. It's triggering a massive inflammatory response, like Justin, once you mentioned earlier, the cytokine storm, just wreaking all kinds of havoc with a ton of other mechanisms. Inflammation has a bunch of other pathways, namely cytokines and other agents of the immune system. If you've got one analgesic effect going on and a dozen inflammatory pathways getting lit up, it's like taking Tylenol and then shooting yourself in the foot. It's going to hurt. This breakthrough may not lead to a cure for COVID-19 or even necessarily new information for treatment or vaccine development, but discovering this new pathway for pain communication could mean an entire new class of medications that exploit this non-opioid pathway for pain relief. The spike protein would have to be augmented to specifically target neuropilin 1 over ACE2, and it would have to be designed in a way that it wouldn't be eliminated by the immune system. We know that with the mRNA vaccine, our own cell's machinery is repurposed to create the spike proteins, which are then recognized by the immune system as foreign and eliminated, developing an immune response. Longevity of this treatment was not tested in the mice, as far as I know. It's unclear if they developed any immune response to the spike protein, which would be interesting to see. Ultimately, this clearly requires more research and more funding, and I think it'll be a long time, years likely, before we have any promising results in regard to a new class of drugs for pain, but I think there is hope, and it's wonderful to see something possibly good come out of this. I'm not saying that it makes the pandemic worthwhile, or nor even that having this in any way attenuates the losses. At the time of this writing, almost 5 million deaths worldwide. It's just something that we need to be cognizant and appreciative of. You guys know that I like to look on the bright side of things. And COVID has been overwhelmingly bleak for a long time. We need to periodically take a step back and recognize the knowledge that we've gained. So uh, I have a quick question for Shane. Yeah. So the NRP1 antagonists, right? Those are the ones that are suspected to, call, to reduce pain, right? 
The agonists seem to increase pain. So antagonists. So VEGF, which would be an activator, whereas spike proteins tend to block it, so they reduce pain. Okay. Do you think that this is something we could target with small molecule drugs? Because with the vaccines going around, almost everyone's going to have an immune response against the, yeah. the spike protein. So we'd have to go either the, the monoclonal route or we'd have to go the small molecule route. That's very true. I didn't even think of the fact that these people are already, that like, you know, so many millions of people already have an immune response to this. It'd be like, wow, that'd be dangerous. Yeah, I guess we would have to. Uh, but now that we have the knowledge of it, I think it'd be fairly, not easy, but easier to create a small molecule target or small molecule to target neuropilin one yeah because don't we already have like vgf inhibitors or something like that we do yeah they're for cancer yeah because you know the vascular epithelial you, you, it stops the tumor growth because they've got dysfunction in the angiogenesis yeah because i remember talking about that with one of the professors i was doing research with because we were doing not malignant uh, neurofibromatosis, I think it was called. I forget. It's NF1. Mm -hmm. We were working with that. And then I'm like, well, what about these drugs? And he's like, well, they actually don't have an effect on this. So the I other... remember something vaguely about it. Yeah, I did. I read a little bit about the VEGF1 uh, drugs for cancer. And one of the interesting things about, I think, a few of them, they actually have side effects of neuropathies because they're not as selective for neuropylin. They do, and they do activate one of the neuropylin things through their similarities with the, the VEGF. So they end up with like a little bit of neuropathy. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of curious what a type of drug like this would look like. To me, when you were discussing it, 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 I mean, the only thing I can think of in terms of pain management currently on the market that deals directly with a protein is like Nurtec and all these migraine medications that are coming out now. Is it going to look something like that, where it's blocking a, a certain protein from binding? And, and I guess that's that's it. It's just going to be an antagonist. Could we see something like that? Maybe. Um, I don't think it's going to be as specific as like the CGRP analogs like Nurtec and the other Mgality and Ajovi. Uh, those work on CGRP as well. No, I, I don't know if it'd be as, as selective as those guys. I th I'd, I'd imagine that it would be a little bit more broad since it's got such a... Um, systemic availability for this receptor but it'd be interesting to see yeah i mean we also have to consider the broader effects that it has throughout the body mm -hmm. like not just on nociceptive stuff yeah definitely because it's like if your pain's gone but you can't smell anything like <laughs> what's the trade-off or if it makes your kidneys poop out like yeah yeah you definitely have to make it really selective well hopefully it wouldn't be like you know something like an inhaler that you huff and then it wouldn't get into like the olfactory nerves i don't know if you take a pill, it's probably not, it's not going to be distributed to the nerves necessarily to like the olfactory nerves. Something to think about for people smarter than us. I mean, it's kind of interesting that you mentioned at least an oral formulation because at least I read literally last night that Merck came out with a new oral, oral treatment for COVID-19 called molnupiravir. Mm. And how it works is that it literally, once administered orally, it would actually confuse the SARS-CoV-2 to actually think of using it as its viral replication mechanism. Oh. And once it does that, it says it basically initiates genetic errors so that it stops it from replicating. Yo, hmm. that's pretty cool. That is very interesting. I'd have to see what kind of studies they've done about that. I know, like I said, I read about this last night and currently the studies haven't been published yet, but according to Merck, and I believe it worked on this with another company, I have to do another double check to see what bio, uh, biological biotech company that it worked with on this one. 
but in the preliminary studies that I did on patients with mild to moderate COVID-19, it actually reduced the amount of deaths by actually 50%. It was a report of 17.3% deaths, which was about half to compare to the placebo group. That's dramatic. It is. Yeah, that's so incredible. dramatic, in fact, that actually it's already beating be an independent uh, review organization is actually trying to have it stopped prematurely and have it fast-tracked for approval. Because something like this with that kind of data, it would literally mean the first oral treatment for mild to moderate COVID-19. Mm. Now, here's the thing. I saw your head kind of shaking, Cal, that, yeah, stopping a <laughs> stopping a trial prematurely to kind of get it on the market, that kind of raises flags for pharmacists like ourselves, or at least pharmacy students like ourselves, as well as any medical expert in research, because it's like, hold on, we need to actually see this data. And let me be clear, it hasn't even been peer-reviewed yet. Yeah. And yet, the U.S. has already spent $1.2 billion for $1.7 million of the tablets to be used Whoa. once it gets that emergency oh, use authorization. God. So already it's like, uh, are we moving a little too fast? I mean, the data does sound good. Shane, I kind of agree with you that it's like reducing the amount of deaths by half in this preliminary study. I'm like, yo, that's, that's cool. But we can't be moving too fast with this kind of stuff. Though I do think it's kind of interesting that... If, the, if all things go well, we are talking about an oral drug that actually confuses COVID-19 to not go through that transcription and translation and all that jazz. I just hope this isn't another Regeneron kind of deal. When we inevitably do a podcast episode on Atacanumab, we could talk ad nauseum about the EUA process, but it's just, uh, I mean, right now it's just bad. We, we could talk for an hour and a half about that. Yeah. Absolutely. That's that pretty wild. But I definitely mentioned it, at least just because you were mentioning how when we think about what this, this new um, neuropilin 1 drug mm -hmm. can look like, I guess as far as an oral route, that's actually currently being done today. So I kind of found that interesting when I encountered it last night. I was like, oh, this is pretty good. Oh, it's being fast-tracked already. Wait a minute. <laughs> Slow your horses. I mean, Regeneron and Remdesivir both got EUAs, they, and they're not... They don't have that level of, of efficacy. I think remdesivir, you studied it pretty mm -hmm. heavily. What did it have, like a 12% in moderate cases and like almost no effect in severe? It was like a 14% in the moderate cases and about 9 to 10% in the severe cases. Exactly. Like So a 50% reduction in mild to moderate might not seem like a lot, but if you keep them from progressing to severe, that's a huge burden lifted off of the healthcare system. Yeah, exactly. So I kind of see it from both sides as far as a pro and a con, especially with this preliminary data that Merck is coming out with saying, this is what, this is the results that we're getting just now. It's like, okay, I can see the pro in it. Any benefit in a way kind of outweighs the burden. But on a con side, I'm like, we got to be careful. We got to look, this has to be peer reviewed because we need to think about the safety profile mm -hmm. when we talk about oral antiviral drugs. Uggs and a lot of other things. So I kind of like, I'm always the type of person that's always caution, always outweighing the risks before the benefits. Mm -hmm. And I mean, at least in some of the classes that we've taken, that kind of hurt me a bit in some classes. <laughs> so it's like on some tests, it's just like, ah, that, you're being a little over the cautious. But I'm like, hey, that's just who I am. <laughs> yeah, ID probably is the one where it got you. It's like, maybe yep. we should just use uh, uh, Augmentin. And it's like, <laughs> no, go straight to Vancazosin now. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, no. Sometimes you got to get it hard and fast. And sometimes you got to take it low and slow. 
Yeah. It's the difference between uh, good fried rice and good barbecue. You want to flash fry that rice versus slow roll on that barbecue. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> I could go for some barbecue right now. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter to keep up with our episodes and content. Special thanks to Kelly Kerr for making the music in our intro and outro. Additional music from Pixabay and Fesleyan Studios.